If you're loving the Bible Brief, will you take just a moment to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify? We're having hundreds of people every week try out the show, and we want you to help even more discover the Bible Brief. Potential listeners depend upon your reviews to learn why they should listen. So will you do us a favor? Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify. Join the cause to help the world learn the life-changing story and message of the Bible. Today we're dipping our toes into the subject of the law that God gave to Israel. Did it still govern Jewish life now that Messiah had come? You're listening to The Bible Brief. Since that life-changing experience on the road to Damascus, Saul, the former enemy of Jesus, had become a leading voice in the expanding church. He now understands that Jesus is indeed the long-awaited Messiah, and that Jesus is the means of salvation for the world. And not only does Saul understand who Jesus is, he's been directly commissioned by Jesus to bring the gospel to the nations outside of the Jewish nation. Saul is the last apostle. Now, in the days of the Roman Empire, people often had multiple names. And this was true of the Apostle Saul, too. And considering the multilingual, multicultural context in which the people lived in the Roman Empire, this shouldn't be surprising to us. People often take new and simpler names in the modern day when they immigrate to a new country. Well, the Apostle Saul was known by most throughout the Roman Empire as Paul. This is probably how you've heard of him before, the Apostle Paul which happens to rhyme with his Jewish name, Saul. Okay, so the Apostle Paul ends up taking numerous journeys throughout the Roman Empire, spreading the gospel of Jesus to people in every city that he visits. Sometimes these were short visits of just a few days, but occasionally these visits turned into long-term stays of a year or more. His length of stay often depended upon the needs of the people in the city, balanced with Paul's God-given desire to preach the gospel in more new cities. Now, when Paul went to a new city, he would almost always start at the Jewish gathering place as his jumping-off point for ministry. These gathering places were called synagogues, and they were essentially places where Jews would gather to read portions of the Old Testament. It would be here, in the synagogues, where Paul would tell the Jews that the Messiah had come, and that this Messiah was Jesus who had died on the cross for sin, was resurrected from the dead, and was now in heaven waiting to return to earth to reign in Jerusalem as the king of Israel. Paul's preaching of this good news to the Jews was often met with many Jews responding positively to the gospel and becoming believers in Jesus. These new believers would be baptized with the Holy Spirit, and would then turn to learning as much as they could from Paul about Jesus and about the new way of life now that Jesus had come, and Paul would teach them. But after preaching in the synagogues, Paul would also turn to the marketplace to share the gospel of the kingdom. After preaching to the Jews, he would then come before the Gentiles to ensure that they too could understand that they could become part of the kingdom of God through Jesus. That God made his own righteousness available through the blood of Jesus and that they could be covered in the righteousness of God through faith in Him. And with Paul's message, many Gentiles come to faith in Jesus too. This was Paul's practice from city to city. He would go to the Jews first, and then he would also go to the Gentiles of the city. Jews would have been predisposed, perhaps, to hear about the Messiah, given that they had knowledge of the scriptures, the covenants, and the expectation of the Messiah in general. 
And in partnering with the Jews, Paul could have partnership in each city where he then expanded to preaching to the Gentiles as well. Now, this may have been true strategically, but there was another reason that Paul did this. Jesus was his model. Jesus himself ministered almost exclusively among the Jews during his earthly ministry. And it wasn't until after the resurrection that he commanded the apostles to preach the gospel to all nations of the world. Jesus' example sets up a template for Paul's ministry. First the Jews, and then also the Gentiles. Listen to how Paul describes the gospel in his letter to the church in the city of Rome. He mentions this ministry template. Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. Greek here meaning Gentile. Now, this doesn't make Gentiles second-class citizens compared to the Jews or anything, when he says to the Jew first and also to the Greek. This is simply a description of functional order rather than value order. That is, the fact that the order of ministry was to the Jews first does not mean that Jews are better than Gentiles. It merely means that Jews were preached to first. And that's it. Okay, so now let's get into the conflict here. We've talked about Paul's ministry strategy and ministry order, but now let's talk more about ministry content, especially with regard to Jews and those from the Gentile nations. And there's no better place to start than the law given by God to the Jews. If you were a Jewish follower who came to faith in Jesus, there was a critical question that would come to your mind. And this question would get highlighted as soon as you saw Gentiles coming to faith in Jesus as well. The question is, what about the law? And we could extend that to ask, what about the sacrifices? What about the rules and regulations regarding cleanliness and purity? Didn't we get punished by God because of disobeying the law? What are we Jews supposed to do now? Well, we can look to some of the letters of the New Testament to help us answer that question. And for our purposes, we'll look to Paul's letter to the church that was in the region of Galatia. Paul here is explaining the relationship between the Abrahamic covenant, remember the land, seed, and the blessing, and God's covenant with the Israelite nation at Mount Sinai where the law was given. Paul says this, which I'm going to amplify a little bit for clarity. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Messiah. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years after the promises to Abraham, does not annul the Abrahamic covenant so as to make the promises void. For if the inheritance promised to Abraham comes by the law, it no longer comes by a promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then did God give the law to the Israelites? It was added because of their sins, until the offspring should come to whom the promise to Abraham had been made. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, which was identified and defined by the law, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith in Jesus was revealed, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. 
So then, the law was our guardian until Christ the Messiah came, in order that we might be declared righteous by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under the law guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith, just like Abraham. Okay, so that was a lot. Let's summarize what Paul says here. He essentially says that the law was a temporary measure that had a few functions, two of which are a focus of Paul here. Function one was to reveal sin. The law, by defining sin, showed people their sinfulness. This was a point emphasized by Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount when he showed the perfect righteous standard inherent in the law. Again, function one was to reveal sin. Now, function two was to tutor or guard the Jews. The law was to teach and guide them to the truths that would prepare them to receive the Messiah when he was revealed. Again, the function two was that it was a tutor for the Jews. Now, having identified these functions, he then says that, now that faith has come, we are no longer under the guardian. That is, the law has performed its functions as God intended, and we're no longer under the law as the rule for life. Now that faith in Jesus has come, the law's functional purpose as a rule for life is passing away. And he underlines this point with a nod to the righteousness that believers receive apart from the law. He says, The law was our guardian until the Messiah came, in order that we might be declared righteous by faith. Here he's demonstrating something very, very important. The law could reveal sin, but it couldn't fix sin. It couldn't actually make someone righteous. It could only continually demonstrate their unrighteousness. This is why it could be described as a guardian. In demonstrating the unrighteousness of people who continually broke the law, it also continually pointed to the need for faith. Faith like that faith of Abraham in Genesis 15.6. Remember, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. The law's function to reveal sin became the salt that parched the sinner, that made them thirsty for righteousness that made them desire the righteousness available by faith in Jesus, the perfect righteousness with which any believer could boldly approach God. They weren't to use the blood of animals like the law required. Instead, they were covered in the atoning blood of Jesus that would keep them perfect forever. Not a perfection in themselves, who still sinned even after coming to faith, but a perfection put on them because they believed in Jesus. Christians believe in Jesus and God counts it to them as perfect righteousness. Perhaps for some clarity here, we could compare the law to some software on your computer. The software scans your computer everywhere, all the nooks and crannies, all the bits and bytes, and a window pops up on your screen that says, uh-oh, your computer has a virus. And then the window says, user, we cannot fix this virus but we can temporarily alleviate the issue until the computer can be taken to a technician. Okay, so the law is like this virus identification program, and the computer technician is like Jesus. The program could identify, but not fix the problem. Instead, it pointed to the technician who could make the computer clean and functional again. Now let's extend the example even a bit more. 
The technician, Jesus, when he fixes the computer, installs a new and better antivirus program on it. And it makes the computer perform better than ever and helps mitigate damage from future viruses. Now this new program is like the baptism of the Holy Spirit, who helps the believer live more and more like Jesus. The Holy Spirit helps the believer live according to what is referenced in the New Testament as the law of Christ. And the law of Christ is simply expressed by Jesus as this, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, here's the point. The law given by God to the Israelite nation is now decommissioned because Messiah has come. Now that Jesus has come and revealed himself to the world, the tutor isn't needed anymore. While the law retains incredible usefulness for learning about God and God's righteous standards, among other things, it no longer is the rule for life. The program of the law has been upgraded to the program of Jesus. A simple law of love as we obey God and seek to live more and more like Jesus. Join us next time as we consider the righteousness of God. Does God just overlook our sin? If he does, would that make God unjust? If God is unjust, is he really perfectly righteous? These are pretty important questions, and Paul again helps us see the amazing perfection of God's righteousness expressed in the cross of Jesus. Thanks for listening to The Bible Brief. Are you enjoying the podcast? Leave us a five-star review on your podcast app. It will help people discover the Bible brief and be exposed to the life-changing story and message of the Bible. Thank you for helping us grow. Copyright Bible Literacy Foundation 2022